tonight on Arena. The Stereophonics Kelly Jones on his new venture, Far From Saints, and Andrew Motion on The Art of the Elegy. Far From Saints is a new band and the new musical project of Kelly Jones, the lead singer and songwriter with the Stereophonics. Far From Saints is a three-piece made up of Jones, along with Patty Lynn and Dwight Baker of American band The Wind and the Wave. Far From Saints is about to tour its self-titled album beginning in Vicker Street in Dublin on Sunday, November the 12th. And I'm delighted to be joined on the line by Kelly Jones of the Stereophonics and now of Far From Saints. Kelly, it's great Great to talk to you. And I know you have many, many Stereophonics fans here in Ireland. Hey. <laughs> um, yeah, how are you? Very well, very well. So this new Good. venture was born out of a Stereophonics tour back in 2013 when you met the guys in The Wind and yeah. the Wave. Uh, how did you bond with Patty and Dwight? Um, yeah, I met them on, we were doing a tour for an album called Graffiti on the Train and we were in America. And then uh, I didn't see them for about seven or eight years. And I did um, a solo tour called Don't Let the Devil Take Another Day in 2019. And they opened up for me. And I've always loved Patty's voice. And I was watching her at the side of the stage every night. And I said, do you want to write some songs together? You know, because I, I really connected to how she was performing. And we started messing about with some songs and sending ideas to each other in the middle of the night and back and forth. And by the end of the 1920 shows, we had like 10 songs. So we went straight into the studio, recorded them. Um, and it went very fast. We used some Nashville musicians and it became a very cool Americana kind of folk Fleetwood Mac kind of country vibe. And, um, and then unfortunately the world stopped with the pandemic. So we were sitting on the record for four years and, um, we brought her out last year. It went top five and we've been touring all summer and festivals and stuff. So now we're looking forward to doing a, you know, a little headline tour across uh, the UK and Ireland. Now, you're the sole writer of songs with the Stereophonics. I mean, you go off and you're quite happy to write hits like Dakota, Have a Nice Day, C'est La Vie. So was it very mm. hard then to say, hey, Patty, I'd like to write some songs with you? It was great, actually. I've, ne- I've never done it before. I've been asked by my publisher to write songs for pop artists or different people, and it's never really been something that appealed to me. Uh, I feel if I'm writing something, I need to connect to it personally. and when Patty and I were exchanging ideas and Dwight music ideas, you know, we were coming up with uh, things that we found a common thread through, really. I don't think it was, I don't think you could pre-plan it. I think it was very organic. It was very natural. It was kind of like lightning in a bottle at the time. It was just happening very, very fast, very, very easy. And um, it was an amazing experience. And the record making was the same. The album was recorded in just nine days. So, um I don't think it's something you could plan and, and figure out. You know, I think you, you find people and it works or it doesn't work. Um, I've never really been a factory kind of songwriter wanting to go off and write songs with different people. So it was it was something on a personal level also, I think. And what was the quality of Patty's voice that you thought that it was right for, for yours, for duets? Um, well, I think, you know, hundreds of people can sing and they can go on talk shows and TV shows and they can sing the highest notes and they can technically they can be brilliant and all that but I mean do you feel it um, and I'd sit and watch them and I'd introduce them on stage every night and I don't know there was just something about a voice that just used to you know it struck a chord inside and it would really kind of move me and I believed it you know same way as I'd like listen to Otis Redden or Sam Cooke 
when I was a kid or something. It was something that felt real and honest. Um, and also, I think, her lyric writing and, and Dwight's songwriting, you know, he does his own songwriting with lots of people as well. So it was a very classy kind of connection, really, of, of, of talent all in the same place at the same time. And it just naturally worked. You know, as I said, I don't think you could pre-plan it. Um, it just seemed to work for us at that point in time. Maybe six months before, it wouldn't have. I don't know. It just it just seemed to happen on that tour. And, and they are deep, personal songs, you know, personal songs, the workout um, situations couples might find each other in their lives. Like, let's turn this back around. How did that yeah. one come about? Um, well, Patty and Dwight are the beginnings of that song. And then I remember we finished that in a hotel in in Cornwall, we were doing the Eden Project and uh, we asked the hotel, could we have a little room at the back? And they gave us a room and we finished the song in there. And Patty had a, an idea about some friends of hers who I think it may be a guy in the forces who was leaving home and then we had our story and she had her story. And and somehow we just connected different lines and different ideas and themes and it just seemed to make a song that made sense to all of us um, without kind of giving away the whole thing and leaving it open for the listener's interpretation, you know. Um, so let's listen to Let's Turn This Back Around Now from Far From Saints. That was Let's Turn This Back Around from Far From Saints and I'm talking to Kelly Jones of Far From Saints and of course Stereophonics. Um, I love the track also Let The Light Shine On You. There's, a, there's It's about a duo or a couple who who things aren't going on the same track for them. One is having mm. the time of their life and the other seems to be there having to wait it out. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, well I think separation from people that uh, you love um, and the the challenges and difficulties that come with those kinds of situations but I think what I tend to offer most songs that I write uh, that kind of go through these challenges and adversities in people's lives um, is the kind of hopeful ending to it all really um, you can write about how dark or deep or challenging something is but I think then you add, you add something like let the light shine over you is offering hope um, which I th- I feel is a is if there's a thread in any of my songwriting I feel that is kind of it um, uh, you, you try to offer that kind of light at the end of the tunnel sort of thing you know yes because it is very hopeful there there is a sense that that you know that that I let you go through your stuff but we might be able to you know get it together later on down the line yeah. Well, I think life's like that. You know, you, you know, you everybody gets in a dark patch in a dark situation. At times, we've all been there. We've all go through challenges, but um, impermanence, basically. You know, everything does pass, um, even though we don't feel like it in the middle of it all. But um, it does move and it does shift, and you do come out the other side of it. But you know, um, at times when you're in it, it doesn't feel like that. So. Music and the arts offer that hope, I guess. Well, let's listen to Let the Light Shine on You from Far From Saints. Let 
Let the light shine on you from Far From Saints and I'm talking to Kelly Jones. Kelly, you're used to playing huge stadiums and arenas with uh, the stereophonics. How different is is the performance for you there singing duets, mm. singing in, you'll be singing in Vicar Street when you're in Ireland, so I'm presuming you're going to be doing smaller venues. And also, yeah. do you modulate your voice for, uh, for Patty's voice? Yeah, it's a different pro- procedure, really. I mean, in the summer, we played stadiums opening up for the Kings of Leon and Hosier and Paul Weller. We were doing lots of big shows and then we would do small clubs. Um, you know, the band is very musical. It's very eclectic. The seven of us, uh, we do a few cover versions in between. Um, but I've changed my voice to fit in with parties and her vice versa. Um, and it's kind of... a uh, in stereophonics, you know, I'm projecting like I want to take the back wall off because it's a it's a big mm-hmm. rock and roll band, and you know it's a different kind of force. Uh, this is much more. It's not soft or delicate. It's still a rock and roll band, but it's 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 just delivered in a very different way. You know, there's no one front person. We both bounce off each other, and it's kind of like you know, two panthers prowling across the stage at times. You know, the both of us are kind of leading this thing, and it's it's kind of a it's kind of a different experience. You know. Um, but you get to see two people who can really sing and you get to get two people who really deliver a song in a way that and and a great band behind you so it's a it's a very very different experience to the stereophonics thing but there's there's elements of of everything that we do obviously within it but it's just dressed up in this in this new outfit really um with farfel saints uh, the album there is so much talk uh, are singing about delicate relationships so how have your uh, bandmates in the stereophonics taken to you doing this project with far from saints <clears throat> uh well richard who's been with me since i was about 3 he uh he plays the bass in stereophonics he's been doing the live shows from far from saints with us and um and a few mates from Wales and obviously then we got the the Americans. Um but the boys in the band, you know, they're really supportive. Jamie who plays drums in Stereophonics, he's got a, another little band called 86 TVs, which he does with a few of the lads from the Maccabees. Um Adams and Danny's been doing his own solo little thing. So everybody's busy doing their own little pieces and um and next year we've got a big big plans to bring out a big project at the end of next year. So It'll all fall back into place uh, pretty soon, I'm sure. So these things are creative outlets which ignite the other creative outlets. It's about growth and about moving forward and not getting stagnant and, you know, trying to stay true to what we want to do creatively. So nobody's got any issues there or any drama with that side of things. Um, You also had a serious health scare a few years ago when you had to get an operation on your throat. Was that a really scary time? Yeah. Um, yeah, it was kind of a general kind of checkup and they found a polyp on my vocal cords, um, which obviously I've used my voice to do what I do since the first show I did when I was like 12 years old. So um, it was kind of a, I think they called it a one a trauma polyp. I could have got it just shouting at the football or when I lost my keys. It wasn't really from singing, um, but it needed to be operated on. And then after the operation, then there's obviously a risk and then you got to do all the rehab and all that stuff. So that actually, that solo tour actually was the first thing I did after that. So that's probably a lot of the things I was going through. Um, and do you remember the first time you picked up the guitar again to see, you know, is my voice okay? 
Yeah, it was a lot of work. You know, you, I couldn't speak for a while, then I could read five lines out of a book for a few days, and then, and then I got a coach to help me out to get it back, blowing bubbles in bottles and stuff like that to get the vocal cords strong again. And then, bit by bit, you can sing and sing a little bit more. And very, very stressful, nerve wracking situation for a singer, and I'm sure lots of singers have gone through it. Um, but I had some good support. I, I would call Tom Jones actually. He would give me a lot of support because he'd been there back in the day, and so. He was he was giving me some advice as well. So yeah, I think good. he gave you some advice before you actually had the surgery. He did. He said, make sure they use a knife, not a laser, um, because if you use a laser, apparently the vocal cords can shrink back after the heat, and I think that's what happened to Julie Andrews. So he he said, make sure they use a knife. So I said to the surgeon, and he said, he said, no, I, I'm I'm using a knife. It's all good. Um, so, and and Tom Jones, I mean, obviously you're both Welsh. How did you get to know Tom Jones? Is it just all the Joneses know each other or famous people called <laughs> Jones know each other? Uh, I knew Tom from, we did, um, he did a, a duet album in 1998 or 99. Mm-hmm. And and we did this, uh, the Three Dog Night song written by Randy Newman, uh, Mama Told Me Not To Come, uh, which was like a big hit. A big and, hit, yeah. Uh, uh, and I've I've been best mates with Tom ever since, really. So I'd sometimes go around to his place and watch some football in lockdown. And he played the stadium and stuff with us. And I played this, the Cardiff Castle with him this year. And yeah, we have a chat on the phone. He tells me lots of stories all the time. He's a he's a lovely guy. And now you have a solo album coming up as well. What can you tell us about I'm, that? I made a record um, in a little studio on the edge of the. Uh, North Sea basically in Norway I'd written some songs and I wanted to find somewhere which was quite secluded and peaceful yet beautiful and uh, and I went there for about six seven days and recorded this record it's pretty much all on the piano and um, different atmosphere sounds and orchestration um, but that's quite a, a beautiful record that's going to come out um, next spring I think uh, so we're just trying to piece that together in between all this other stuff Um but yeah, that's very different as well. It's been nice to work on that too. Uh, you have, um, you've played Ireland many times. You also got married in Ireland. You've got lots of links here with Ireland. Yeah. Yeah, I got married in um, <clears throat> County Clare. Ten years this, this December, actually. Um, in Doombeg before, I think Donald Trump owns that place now, but at the time he didn't. Um, but we had a great time, yeah. We had some Great friends come over, all family. We had Ronnie Wood come over and Paul Weller and we had, we had a little jam on stage. It was great. Yeah, always had good times in Ireland. Well, look, we're looking forward to seeing you in Vicar Street on uh, Sunday week. Kelly Jones from the Stereophonics yeah, and from Far From Saints. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Now let's finish with a third track from Far From Saints. Here is Screaming Alleluia.
Screaming Hallelujah from Far From Saints. Far From Saints play Vicar Street in Dublin on the 12th of November and the Ulster Hall in Belfast on the 13th of November. Full details from farfromsaintsband.com. You're listening to Friday Night's Arena. For fans of the poet Andrew Motion, 2023 is turning out to be a bumper year. In May, Faber brought out his new and selected poems, 1977 to 2022, and Andrew published his memoir, Sleeping on Islands, about, among other things, his experiences UK Port Laureate and friendship with Philip Larkin and Ted Hughes. You may recall he spoke to us on Arena at the time. Now he's back with the Penguin Book of Elegy, Poems of Memory, Mourning and Consolation, a volume he has edited with his friend Stephen Regan. It brings together poems written in English by over 200 poets from the present going all the way back to classical antiquity. And it's fair to say the Irish are well represented, as we might expect. I'm delighted that Andrew joins me now on the line from London. You're very welcome, Andrew. Well, I'm delighted to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me back. Now, all the three books, the book you spoke to us about, which was Sleeping on Islands, then the, right. the memoir, the collected poems, right. and now the Penguin Book of Elegy. Were these all being worked on at the same time as well as the, the publishing dates coincide? <laughs> well, they were. I mean, the, the only thing that's worth sort of expanding a little bit about that is that Stephen Regan, my friend, and as you kindly said, my friend and my um, actually former student, we first met when I was teaching at Hull. He was one of my students up in Hull, what now feels like a thousand years ago. I've actually been working on this anthology for 10 years. So it's it's as, as much by luck as by judgment that it happens to have come out in the same year as these other two books you've been mentioning. And were you able, able to compartmentalise the work? Here's my well, memoir, here's my poems, yeah, here's, here's yes, the I mean, elegy. Yes, it's a nice question that. Yes, I, I suppose so. I mean, except that these things do feed off each other in interesting ways, don't they? And because I, it's my strong feeling, as we, which we talk about in the introduction to this elegy book, that there is a sense in which all poems have an elegiac component. And, and the sense that I'm, I mean by that is that all poems exist in the teeth of time. They try and either snatch something out of time's destructive flow or they try and oppose time in some way. They preserve things um, that time wants to tear away from us. And a lot of my own poems are interested in doing the same sort of um, in, in doing the same sort of thing. So th- yet they're both separate and overlapping. What do you think makes a good elegy then when it's trying to to pick something out uh, that, that will stop this inevitable flow of time? Quite. Well, it depends a little bit what kind of elegy you're talking about. Inevitably, a lot of the poems in this book are elegies by people for other people, people who they've been fond of, people they've been married to, people they've known, or people in the public eye who they think need commemorating for one reason or another. Um, And then there are other poems which are about 
which take an elegiac attitude towards landscape, for instance. Um, there's a wonderful poem by John Clare, um, the romantic poet John Clare, mm-hmm. which grie- grieves over a, a disappeared landscape, a, a, a destroyed landscape. Um, and of course, as we come near to the present day, there are lots of poems about landscapes ruined uh, by, by climate change. And there are other poems about beloved pets, too. We were very keen to have animals properly represented in the in the book. Um, so it does depend slightly what, what sort of category of elegy you're talking about. But I think they they share a sense of wanting to, I mean, not simply to remember and honour the person, the thing, the place they're, they're about, but also in some sense to preserve them, perhaps even recreate them, so that the recreation, which is the poem, exist, as we've, as we've been saying, as a kind of counterblast to the effects of time itself. Now, we know as well as being a great poet, you are also a great biographer. And one of your mm-hmm. great achievements was your biography of the romantic poet John Keats. And I think you have agreed to read some poems from the Penguin Book of Elegy for us. And you are going to read When I Have Fears That I May Cease To Be. Well, thank you for asking me to read this beautiful sonnet by, by Keats. We have to remember that he wrote this, of course, as he wrote everything when he was a very young man, and that adds the special poignancy to it, I think. When I have fears that I may cease to be before my pen has gleaned my teeming brain, before high-piled books in character hold like rich garners the full-ripened grain, when I behold upon the night's starred face huge cloudy symbols of a high romance and think that I may never live to trace their shadows with the magic hand of chance. And when I feel, fair creature of an hour, that I shall never look upon thee more, never have relish in the fairy power of unreflecting love, then on the shore of the wide world I stand alone and think till love and fame to nothingness do sink. There's something very sort of blank, isn't there, about that? And think. (laughs) Yes. Um, as As though the thing he's contemplating has put all possibility of conclusion out of his mind. I mean, that just reduced him to a state of thoughtfulness. Can I be cheeky and ask you, do you fear, like Keats, that you may cease to be before your pen has gleamed your teeming brain? Well, I, I'm sure most people, I mean, I'm 71 years old, so so I've had more chance than John Keats did to, to gleam my teeming, teeming brain. But I, of course, um, for all kinds of reasons, and getting older is the, the most obvious one, the sense of not being able to finish the thing that you want to finish does loom larger and larger, more or less on a daily basis. Um, Andrew, what do we go to poetry for when someone close to us dies? I, I mean, the, the collection is called Poems of mm. Memory, Mourning and Consolation. Are they the elements we go to to try and preserve the, the memory, to help us with the mourning, to, to give us some consolation? Yes, I think they they do do that. I mean, they, they very often, and no matter what their quality might be, elegies do worry about their capacity to do that. But that's the intention, at least. And a good deal of the pathos of many of the poems in this book, I think, derives from the feeling that it's, they set themselves to preserve something, to recall something, to make permanent something which has been taken away, to reestablish it in a sense, knowing that it can only do that up to a point. And you can't bring somebody back to life, but you can create something that stands in their stead and calls them to mind. Uh, In this current time, which is so awful with war in the Middle Mm, East mm, and the Ukraine, mm, with 
death right. and destruction all around us. Uh, you've talked about what poems can say about uh, the subject of climate change. What can mm. it say about the horrors of war? Well, what Wilfred Owen says in his unpublished in his own lifetime and actually unfinished preface um, to the poems that he wanted to bring out but never lived to, to see in print himself, he says, all a poet can do today is warn. Um, and that seems to me a, a remark which is full of possible readings, as it were. Um, and in the face of the, some of the appalling things that we're seeing happening in the world around us now, whether it be on the absolutely global scale of climate change or these dreadful wars that you've been mentioning, there is some some way in which that remark can be applied to all that as well, I think. Poets can't change legislation. They can't gear up our politicians, mm-hmm. so however much we might wish they, they, they might, we might be able to do that, to act more decisively about these things, um, to, to, to argue for peace, to help bring peace into the world. But we can be a voice of conscience and, and speak truth to power about them in ways that we, we hope might contribute to the, the right kind of conclusion. Um, when you spoke to us about your memoir, Sleeping on Islands, um, here on Arena, you spoke about your mother and mm. the accident she had, which was a, a riding accident when she was thrown right. from a horse and how right. in time that led to her death. Uh, right. You include a poem called Serenade, which is the horse she was riding on that day of the awful That's accident. Right. It's a That's long right. poem and it's a poem about the horse. Tell us why you approached the poem like that. And I know you're going to read a passage from it. Well, thank you for asking me to do that. What I, I mean, rather than write in detail about my mum, her character, her personality, and in, and in any sort of ex, very expansive way about our feelings for each other, I thought what I might try and do in the poem, what I did try and do in the poem, is to write about a scene from my childhood, <clears throat> in this case, a quite detailed scene of the guy who used to come and shoe the ponies that my mum and my brother and I had. Um, and by concentrating on a dis- in a description of that activity, try and conjure up a sense of the value that exists for all of us as humans in things that might be ordinary to us. I mean, in other words, I wanted to celebrate a kind of worldliness which my, my mother was, by the time I wrote the poem, not in a position to um, enjoy anymore. So it, in that sense, the poem, though though long, it actually comes at, the, at its elegiac business at quite an oblique angle. And then right at the end, when I think people reading it for the first time haven't seen this coming, um, it, it becomes explicit about what the, the real occasion for the poem is. And you are so going shall, shall to I read just, that, that passage. Well, I was going to say, shall I, shall I just read the last few lines? Yes, that would be great. Thank um, you so much, Andrew. So, well, no, thank you. So there's this three-page, three-and-a-half-page description of this man shooing the, this horse called Serenade. And then it says, and bear, I, it says, now I'm as old as my mother was then, which, of course, I'm not now. I'm a great deal older than my mother was then. But I was that age when I wrote the poem. Now I am as old as my mother was then at the time of her fall. And I can see Serenade clearly in her own later life, poor, dumb creature nobody blamed or could easily like anymore either which meant nobody came to talk to her much in the spot she eventually found under the spiky may tree in the field and still less came to shoe her so her hooves grew long and crinkled round the edges 
like wet cardboard, except they were hard, while she just stood there, not knowing what she had done, or went off with her girlish flats and conquer-coloured arse, waiting for something important to happen, only nothing ever did, beyond the next day, and the next, and one thing leading to another. Thank you very much, Andrew. They're reading Serenade, Andrew Motion, about the death of his mother, but also about the horse Serenade. It's a beautiful poem. Um, thank you. Andrew, thank you very much for sharing those poems with us. Uh, the book is the, is the Penguin Book of Elegy, Poems of Memory, Mourning and Consolation by Andrew Motion and Stephen Regan. And it's published by Penguin. Now I have news of an exciting arena special from the Dublin Book Festival. The Book Festival 23 is an annual feast of reading, interviews and discussions on all things literary. It brings 80 events across five days to venues throughout Dublin City. On Wednesday next, it's arena's turn at the festival. We will be at One Windmill Lane, this fabulous new venue just by the Liffey on the south side of the city. Sean Rocks will interview two of our most successful authors, Paul Lynch and Mike McCormick. Cormac. Mike's novel Solar Bones won most all, almost all, almost all the awards going when it was published in 2016, including the Dublin International Literary Award, the Goldsmith Prize and the Dublin Gosh Energy Irish Book Award. And it was also nominated for the Booker Prize. Paul Lynch is known for his novels Beyond the Sea, Grace, The Black Snow and Red Sky in the Morning. His current novel Prophet Song has been shortlisted for this year's Booker Prize. There will be live music on the night from the singer-songwriter Kriya, whose EP The Callows was released earlier this year. So that is a night with Mike McCormack, Paul Lynch and Kriya at Windmill Lane as part of Dublin Book Festival next Wednesday, November the 8th. If you would like to join us in the audience, booking information is at dublinbookfestival.com and for those who can't make it, we will of course be broadcasting the event live on the night. It's Friday night, so it's album time. There's a theme that links our three albums this week, one of collaboration and chance encounters. Dublin four-piece band The Scratch first met James Vincent McMorrow when he hosted an episode of Ortiz's Soundtrack to My Life and they commandeered him to produce this, their second studio album called Mind Yourself. The line is the solo project of Melty Brain, Brian Dillon, Red Blood Cells and Righteousness is a collaborative album and it's called The Line. It features some of the best in, in the Irish music scene, including Limerick rapper God Knows, Loa, Sarka uh, Richardson and Dan Fox. And our final album was born out of a lunch catch-up in LA between two drummers, Lal Tulshurst, formerly of The Cure, and Budgie of Susie and the Banshee. They later teamed up with producer Jackknife Lee for this album called called, appropriately enough, Los Angeles. But we begin with Dublin band The Scratch and their uh, their third album, Mind Yourself. Our reviewers are Pat Carty and Kate Brennan-Harding. Pat Scratch are known as a metal band and they have a strong following for that. So this album sees them embracing more acoustic sounds and a whole traditional vibe. 
Yeah, um, they do have a very uh, 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 enthusiastic following and I've seen them live a few times myself and they really are ferociously good in the live arena. They started out as... um, a band called Red Enemy, which was more metal, and then the acoustic instruments started to come in. Then, as they changed over to the scratch, and uh, but it's acoustic instruments through big, huge speakers. Like it wouldn't be a guy sitting around a ca- uh, uh, fire in the corner of a pub or anything like that. Um, there was a clip of them playing at the Rory Gallagher Festival in 2017. That kind of turned people onto them. As you say, there's a couple of releases. Then there was the whole buzz. Uh, Couldn't give a rat's came out in uh, 2020. Um, during lockdown, they recorded a live album called Couldn't Get Out of Our Gaffs or Couldn't Leave Our Gaffs which appropriately titled. And then this new album then is the first one with um, on Sony. So it's the first one with a multinational heft behind them. So, Keith, we're going to listen to a track. This is called Banshee. You might introduce it for us because I know you picked it out. Well, yeah, I actually really, this is the opening track of the album and there's a beautiful, uh, there's a, a gorgeous accented young boy who's describing the Banshee, that the Banshee used to be over there and uh, before the houses were built on it and it's kind of eerie and then it goes into this fella who's just in his bedroom and he's <laughs> constantly saying he won't stop singing Champagne Supernova, which I think is absolutely hilarious. But um, uh, yeah, it's absolutely a great, tra- a great track to open the album with. Great. So that's Banshee from the album Mind Yourself by The Scratch. So, Kate, the producer of Mind Yourself is James Vincent McMorrow. Is that an unusual choice, do you think? Well, this is the thing. It's not an unusual choice in terms of James's musicality and obviously he's gotten so much into production lately. But in terms of if people are listening would know James Inson McMorrow as being somebody who creates absolutely beautiful melodies and gentle tones and, you know, is is singing in this kind of way that makes us all feel like we're in a lullaby. Whereas obviously when you then take on producing The Scratch, who are, you know, metal trad fusion, who have echoes of the horse lips, have echoes of, you know, something new that's just been created that has never existed before you, it's a gorgeous pairing because they obviously get to explore what this new genre they're creating is, and I think that uh, James definitely brings his influence in. There's a a very gentle track on the album called Shoes and Daniel Lang's voice is really gentle on it and it's uh, really beautiful because the rest of the album is very pounding and pulsating and hypnotic and that song I think I can hear more of James's influence in terms of like let's have a little little slowdown. Okay, let's listen to some of Shoes. That's Daniel Lang there on vocals from the scratch with um, Mind Yourself and that was Shoes. So how does something so soft and melodic there, Pat, like Shoes, sit with the other offerings on Mind Yourself? Uh, it sits at odds with a lot of them, to be honest mm. with you. The, um, there's a lot of stuff there, like uh, Cheeky Bastard, if I can use a word like that at this. Are we after the watershed? We're all right. Um, <laughs> you can use, use now cheeky, anyway. Yeah, it's done now. Um, there's a lot of, um, that, that's, that's a great sound. There's a lot of, there's, there's a heavy influence of horse lips in, in the guitar solo. It sounds a bit like Johnny Fiend, but there's a great, it, there's a great lyric to it. And uh, when you rhyme uh, Black Russians with repercussions, you, you have me on your side straight away. And 
And then there's another one then, which I think was a single as well, Blackguard, which Will Russell, um, a writer in Dublin, said, um, sounds like the hives crossed with the Dubliners, which is a pretty good description. You know, it it, it's, it sounds like an 18-wheeler going over a cliff. It's, it's really heavy. <laughs> um, Trom 2, which was the first single, and Trom being Irish for heavy, or a reference to Trom Agazatrum, which used to be filmed in this building I believe um, was uh, a very unusual choice for the first single I must have had the fellas at Sony going Jenny Mac what have we got in our hands here but because it's your four and a half minutes of very folky stuff and then it all kicks off it comes in you know? so, so stars out of five how do you translate that into stars Pat uh, I like I like it they're doing their own thing which is which is admirable it might not really be for me all of it some of it gets a bit too heavy but I give it at least three and a half or four depending on which one would you like three and okay. a half or four ah, give him four what <laughs> about yeah, you Kate Okay, well, I think it's definitely the the kind of album that I cannot wait to see them playing live mm. because obviously that's what they do best. That's okay, what people stars. know them for. Uh, I'm going to give them three and a half out of five. Yeah, three and a half out of five. So, Kate, the, that's uh, three out of five and four out of five for Mind Yourself by the Scratch. So, Red Blood Cells and Righteousness, Kate, the line. Tell us yeah. about this project. Okay, well, this is a really cool project. I think when I first read the release, I thought this sounds amazing because Brian Dillon is the producer and musician behind the line, but he's also in what is I consider to be quite a cult favourite band, alternative favourite band at the moment, Melty Brains. And what he decided to do was he brought together a lot of different people and he created each song individually, which I think you can hear on the album. Um, but at the same time, I love the idea of community, which is what he was going for. So there's community and there's uh, collaboration. And he's got people like Loa, Feta, Sarah Corcoran from Pillow Queens, Merle and God Knows from Limerick, who are uh, part of the Narrow Lane Stable. They work with Denise Chyla. They're also in Russ and Gano family, who won the choice Music Prize, Key Debarra is on it, Sorka Richardson. So there's a, a plethora of incredible artists that sell out across venues around the country. And this album itself, he decided to just go, let's see what happens. Let's create something and let's see what happens. And it's trippy and weird. It's like taking a ramble in the woods in black and white and maybe in sepia tone. OK, let's listen to some of Communion from The Line. The Line uh, is the album, uh, Red Blood Cells and Righteousness is the the artist. And uh, that was Communion featuring Loa and Feda. Pat, what do you think of this? It's trippy, all right. It uh, is trippy, yeah. I think you were concerned that maybe sometimes it didn't feature the wonderful collaborators they had. Well, say in that instance there, um, Loa has a fantastic voice, but it's kind of buried in the mix in that. Now, maybe that's the point. Maybe that's that's the intention. Um, first of all, I want to say to Kate, uh, lovely use of the word plethora there. And, uh, <laughs> Thank you very much. And the stuff about the forest is very good. It made me kind of think about it again. But um, my opinion on this record is um, I'm not Electronic is number one fan in the first place, so that's fair. That's one thing to be said. But there's a kind of a lack of songs really on this. There, you know, I know it's supposed to be kind of uh, impressionistic in, uh, in a lot of instances, but it's maybe a bit too much. So, Qui de Barra's contribution, uh, a thing called Fruit Peel Path, is by far and away the best thing on this because she's such an amazing voice, which is let you know, given the space to actually um, sing. Um, you know, she could be singing her shopping list for all I care. I'd still be listening to her, you know? So, Pat, stars out of five for Red Blood Cells and Righteousness, the uh, line. It's not really for me, so I give it two. Two. And from you, Kate? It's three out of five for me. A beautiful little trip. 
Fair enough. And finally, we've Lal Tulsahurst and Budgie and Jackknife Lee. They bring us Los Angeles, an album inspired by a random catch-up in L.A. Pat, you're used to being in Las Vegas <laughs> and places like this for um, random yeah. catch-ups yeah. where creative things happen. Tell us how this came about. I'm used to random stuff, all right. Yeah, Tulsahurst is um, a former member of The Cure and Budgie, as you pointed out, was a member of Susie and the Banshees and also a, a band called The Creatures. Mm. Um, we're a very percussive-led band and they've been they first worked together in the 70s and they've been known each other. So yeah, they, they met over lunch in Los Angeles with uh, another drummer, Bauhaus's Kevin Haskins, who subsequently dropped out. And they went and recorded a bit of stuff at, of all places, uh, Motley Crue's Tommy Lee's house. So they said there was Harley Davidson's and, and whatever whatever else might be lying around Tommy Lee's you house. You can imagine thongs yeah. and all kinds of, well, kinds all of things, of stuff, as we yeah. know. It was probably, yeah. yeah, let's not go into that too much. <laughs> and um, anyway, they, uh, Tallhurst went next door to Jackknife Lee, who are up the road, Jackknife Lee, who's his neighbour, who's an Irish producer, used to be with the, uh, his real name is Garrett Lee, he used to be with the Amazing Colossal Men, but he's worked with everybody from U2 to R.E.M. to Taylor Swift, which is probably why you can afford a house in Los Angeles. And uh, he told him to start again. And basically it's a three-way then collaboration, bringing in uh, guest vocalists and guest musicians. So mm. there's someone different on nearly... And nearly every track here. And Some one of, of those guest uh, musicians is, of course, The Edge. Yeah. So this is Noche Oscura. Now, Kate, much and all as I'd love to talk to you about all the other collaborators on this, we're running out of time. I can so see that. So could you encapsulate what you think about this Los Angeles in in stars, if you don't mind? Yes, I can. I think this is an absolutely incredible album. I think it pulsates, pounds and cleanses our ears. And everybody who likes LCD Sound System should go get it. It's four out of five from me. And from you, Pat. Yeah, not an LCD Sound System fan, so I don't know. But I do find <laughs> some of the other stuff interesting. Uh, like like that Edge thing, it reminds me of the B-sides you two used to do around the Forgotten Fire. So it's interesting. So I will give it a three out of five. Three out of five and four out of five for Los Angeles from Lol Tallhurst and Budgie and Jackknife Lee. My thanks to Kate Brennan Harding and Pat Carty for reviewing the albums tonight. That's it for tonight's show. The programme was researched by Paula Shields. Liam Mullen was on sound. Ollie Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator. And tonight's show was produced by Regina Luby. And John Creedon is next.